Welcome back to another amazing episode of Stargazer. Today, it is my privilege and honor to introduce you all to an amazing author, John Michael Greer, or JMG for short. Thank you so much, John Michael Greer, JMG, for being here. Well, thank you for having me on. So I um, have to say, I've, I've been a professional astrologer for seven years. I've had an interest, a a very enthusiastic interest in astrology for much longer than that. I don't know Mm -hmm. if I necessarily want to count my adolescent interest in horoscopes, but maybe so. That was sort of the gateway into... It it usually is. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) My sun sign horoscope, my desire to know what my best friends were and the Mm -hmm. books I liked, etc. But astrology has been a big part of my life for a really long time. And I had an experience reading your book, The Twilight of Pluto, which was almost as if I've been waiting for this book my entire life. This book is the best astrology book I've ever read. And I mean that. Thank you. You're welcome. I thank you for writing this book because to me, uh, what you put together in this book was everything that's ever interested me in astrology And that is like all the juice that's in this book. This is a very juicy book. All of the history and the symbolism and the mythopoeic perspective, that ecological thought that you're so profoundly gifted in, um, and the truly innovative perspective that you took, actually a groundbreaking thesis, if you will, on the significance of Pluto, all of it together was like a fermentation of the juices that I've been sipping on for so long. (laughs) And, and I mean that sincerely in the alchemical mm-hmm. sense of the word, like you have taken a lot of really wonderful juice and you've turned it into fine wine. So thank you so much for writing this book. It's really changed. Well, thing. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. And thank you very much for, for your comments. I, oh my God. It's, this, this, is a, this is a concept, a set of ideas that I've been mulling over since a few years after I began serious study of astrology, which was about a decade ago. Wow. And I, but of course, I had a lot of background in other aspects of spiritual thought and esoteric thought. And I just, once I started, um, you know, well, we can get into the fine details, but once I started really paying attention to certain aspects of um, what was going on with my own natal chart, with my own um, progress charts and transits, I started going, hold it, this is something I need to look into. Right. And that, and things unfolded. Wow. Well, I'm so glad that you did, um, because I feel like this is... This is a very important book, legitimately. And I haven't read a book, an astrological book that has transformed my perspective and my consciousness like this since Cosmos and Psyche by Richard Tarnas. Ah, thank you, because that was one of the books that convinced me that it was time to get very serious about studying astrology. That's a superb book. It is a superb book. And that was that was the first book that really made me want to do this and take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not I'm not a, a highly skilled mundane astrologer, but that was the first book that really opened my mind, my eyes to what could be done with this language. And mm-hmm. that's what really um it merged my passion for the romantic era and Mm-hmm. art and all of the things that I was interested in historically and it finally gave me this sense that I could use astrology as a lens of perspective perception mm-hmm. that really is life-changing mind-altering and finally married all of my interests in this mm-hmm. way. but this book is just as great and in fact it has taken 
an even more groundbreaking perspective on what the significance of Pluto is. And it has answered so many questions that I've had just my whole life. A lot of um, Hmm. the malaise that I have felt growing up. Uh, Such an ugly world. (laughs) Such an ugly world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know. Part of what drove, I mean, one one important part of what what inspired this book was simply noticing when I ha- when I myself was having uh, transits across my natal Pluto and all of the um, astrology books were saying, you know, doom and destruction is at hand. Your life is going to be turned upside down, and the transits went past and nothing happened. <laughs> uh, when you know, when I, I I was very familiar already with the experience of going through a Saturn return and going through some of these other transits that actually did rattle my life um, good and proper. And then Pluto goes by and he's just, huh? What was that? So that was the one thing. But the other aspect was exactly this issue of the malaise, the ugliness. What happened? Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I belong, I, I have a membership in the art museum here in, here in Rhode Island, the, the one in Providence. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot of lovely art. Yeah. And then you go into the modern art section. In fact, as I noted in the book, they make you walk through a gallery of modern art to get to the good stuff, because otherwise, nobody wants to look at the modern art. It's but ugly, to use a slightly rude turn of phrase. What happened? Why did people run away from beauty, from meaning, from significance, from a unified world into this the, the the modern the modern obsession with ugliness for its own sake. Why in the arts, in music, in literature, we um, you know in, in the built environment, architecture, you name it. What happened? That had been something that had, that I've been brooding over, of course, for many many years. Right. I think a lot of people have. Yeah. And so it was when I began integrating, really integrating the ideas that Richard Tarnas introduced in his book Cosmos and Psyche, and I started paying attention to what was happening with Pluto. And then, of course, the down because the the Pluto's downgrading to dwarf planet status had happened um, a little while before I began serious astrological study, mm-hmm. and I was watching this Pluto because I of course read all these descriptions. This is what Pluto is. This is what it does, and they all seemed to make a great deal of sense, except that all of these trends were just fading out, and I was going, "Oh, really? Yeah." So there we have the inspiration for the book, basically. Yeah, amazing. Um, and I, I do appreciate that you offered me so many answers and so much perspective on what's been so wrong with our world and why mm-hmm. I've always, I, I've been sort of, I've had to live an anachronistic life, sort of a mm-hmm. goal that's in the wrong time. And I don't like to be that unintegrated with my time and place, but it's been a struggle because mm-hmm. I, I live in Los Angeles where almost everything is new. <laughs> um, when something's a hundred years old, it's like a really big deal and it's super exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we do have great museums here. And I, I absolutely got my arts education, not from schools, but from museums. And mm-hmm. I have had the exact same experience. It's, you know, there's this one museum called the Norton Simon. Um, mm-hmm. It was the, the Hunt's ketchup magnate that went and like, plundered Europe for all of its great art at a time when they were, is all on clearance because of the wars. And uh, mm-hmm. 
he amassed a tremendous collection of not only European art, starting from the Renaissance, going all the way up to the 20th century, but a tremendous amount. I mean, I'm pretty sure that he raided Hindu temples or something because... Oh, I'm sure I'm sure that happened. That There was quite a bit of that. If you had money, yes. you could get almost anything. Yes, but nevertheless, I'm, I'm, I have access to this place that that reveals to me uh, many, many thousands of years of beautiful South Asian art. And then upstairs, I can wander from the Renaissance all the way up to the Impressionists, all the way through mm-hmm. until the 20th century. <laughs> and then you get then you get what looks like the product of, of a room full of poo-flinging monkeys. Yes, yes. <laughs> 100%. And I, it's, it's really concerned me. And, you know, architecturally speaking, I, I just can't, I can't fathom why we used to create such beautiful structures, so much beauty. There was, there was a, a very short period of time in Los Angeles where like the, the Masons were building really mm-hmm. gorgeous things. And, and then it just disappears. It's like an archeological record that just stops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, and then it's these these you know these lumps of glass and steel that look as though a giant robot you know squatted and left uh, you know a trace of its of its passage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We had the the, the changes are so dramatic. So and dr- yeah, yeah. So just to catch the readers up on on what we are talking about, in, in <laughs> I think it's important to set up the thesis of your book, which begins with the very real astronomical event uh, in 2006 when Pluto was demoted from planet mm-hmm. to dwarf planet. That happened in 2006. Mm-hmm. And and it was only discovered in 1930. So it was mm-hmm. a very brief window of time where Pluto was actually considered a planet. Mm-hmm. And and you also um, identified that what the true nature of Pluto is, is that it is an opposition to the cosmos, which I thought was so beautiful. And you identified um, that trait because of what you observed historically. And one of the things that you observed, of course, was just this like destruction of beauty and meaning and mm-hmm. dividing. The, the, yeah. <laughs> The, the 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 Greek the Greek the ancient Greek word cosmos, which gives us our word cosmos, it's actually related to the word cosmetic. It comes from the same root. It's specific. It doesn't just mean a universe. It means a beautifully ordered structure. Right. And it combines that sense of beauty and order. That's that's the way that most people through most of human history and doubtless into prehistory as well. That's the way they perceived the universe as this beautifully ordered system. And. During the period when Pluto was a planet, and add on to that, the sort the thirty-year one Saturn cycle window before it was discovered, and and the one we're in now after its demotion, that vision of the universe was an eclipse. The idea was no, the universe can't be a beautifully ordered thing. It has to be just empty space and lumps of rock, and that's that's the Plutonian consciousness. It's that opposition to the beautiful order. That's right. And that was so astute. And you you found traits of this, layers of this in so many different areas of life, as a good astrologer does, which is why I'm so passionate about this field. And mm-hmm. one of the things I really want to start with, this was my favorite part that really blew my mind. Um, you actually defined the word atom, which is something that I've always taken for granted. I never actually uh, knew. Uh, yeah. As well as yeah, in- you have- 
you, you have to remember that, I mean, so many of the words we use, we don't think about them. Everyone uses understand. Think about that word for a moment, literally, to stand under. To understand something is to get under it and take a look at it from beneath, to know what's going on down below the surface. Right. And yet we use that word and don't know it. Adam in Greek, atomos, that which cannot be divided. Yes. And of course, the point that you were about to make, individual, means the same thing in Latin, individuum, that which cannot be divided. That which cannot be divided. And so the, the <laughs> universe was built upon these very basic foundations, this understanding. Mm-hmm if you will, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. individual is something whole and holy unto itself, mm-hmm. that it's not there to be divided, it's whole. And I believe and that- then we yeah, and then we get the first then we get the first intro, the first traces of the Plutonian influence. And within a very short period you have you have um Albert Einstein saying no, the atom can be split. Yes. And if we do that we can release all kinds of power. And you have Freud saying the individual can be split, and that's where all this, this psychic energy is coming from. Right. It's all the division of unity and, and the release of energy. Right. Same thing in the atom, in the individual. Yeah. So you can see that Plutonian energy beginning to build. In, 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 you know, and this, this starting at about 1900, starting about 30 years before Pluto's discovery, starting at the time when astronomers were first starting to look for this mysterious Planet X. I, I love that, by the way, the whole Planet X. Oh, yeah. I, when I was a kid, I watched monster movies, uh, you know, Japanese gaiju, uh, um, kaiju movies. Um, and you had, very often, you had somebody like these evil aliens from Planet X who were, you know, out to destroy the Earth or something like that, and Godzilla had to fight them or what have you. <laughs> it has a wonderful sci-fi sound, which, of course, mm-hmm. is Plutonian as well, according to your research. Oh, yeah. I really loved how you 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 identified, or I guess you discerned the uh, Iranian current that was mm-hmm. so much of the Jules Verne, H.G. Wells sci-fi of mm-hmm. the 19th century that then transforms into what we think of as science fiction. Science fiction, I, the thing is, I grew up, I, I love science fiction. Science fiction and fantasy are my favorite, my favorite branches of literature. And yet, both of them have, had, have been shoved into this Plutonian mold. Mm-hmm. Science fiction does not need to be about climbing into giant metal phalluses and flying off to another planet. Right. Right. You know, that's this Plutonian thing, this, this obsession with space travel, with, you know, heading off into the empty void. Yes. Um, as I commented in the book, in my book, both Jules Verne and H.G. Wells wrote all of these science fiction novels, and only two of them in each author were about space travel. Most of them were about completely different things. Science fiction has gotten dull because right. it's become fixated on, on you know, the giant metal penises. Yep, absolutely. One thing that I love that you observed as well, which I had not really thought about. I think I knew it unconsciously, but. I hadn't really put it together, you know, um, from from Frankenstein to everything that Jules Verne wrote to everything that H.G. Wells wrote when they were describing either the, the the utopian scientist or the mad scientist. It was still this sort of lone wolf, mad genius who was mm-hmm. doing all of these amazing groundbreaking things on their own, almost like Batman in his cave. Like here we have. Mm-hmm. Oh, ba- Batman, actually, that's a great example, actually. Batman is a very Uranian figure. Right, exactly. Like, there's something very independent and individual in that mm-hmm. 
sense of individual. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the Plutonian meta myth is that of a government or a bureaucracy that is now like siphoning resources off of the masses in order to build these great weapons or these great symbols of war. And it's just, it's, Mm -hmm. that was not foreseen. And I think that is what is so truly alienating to someone like Mm me. I think, they, I think it's alienated to most people. I think that's one of the reasons there is such a deep malaise in society these days. The Plutonian, you know, the Plutonian era was a very difficult, very ugly, very alienating period. And so I, you know, I'm glad that it's waning. Oh, me too. So I do want you to actually tell the listeners about the cycle that you've identified. Um, it was demoted in 2006. So mm-hmm. when can we expect Pluto to actually lose its influence. Okay. Let's, I, I'm going to take a step back here to make sure, because there's a very common misunderstanding that a lot of people who aren't familiar with astrology will fall into. They, you know, I, I get this on many podcasts, many, many other discussions about this. People are going, well, so why does it matter that these astronomers made this decision? That's, that's not what's going on here. The astronomers did not affect the heavens. The, the heavens affect the astronomers. What happened when when Pluto was originally discovered, um, the astronomers who found it thought that it was the size of Earth. Now, that itself was kind of, a, kind of a disappointment because they were expecting something the size of Neptune. Neptune's a big planet. Earth is a, is a fairly small one. Except every measurement that was made as we improved our astronomical science, Pluto got smaller and smaller. And smaller. Um, so I think it was in 1980, there was a, a, a humorous article published in, in a scientific journal, mind you, but saying that if this continued, Pluto would, would cease to exist completely by 1984 because it, it had done this whole incredible shrinking planet routine. As it turns out, as we now know from having you know, some space probes actually orbit it, Pluto is tiny. It's one seven hundredth the size of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, sorry. Got the number wrong. One four hundredth the size of the Earth, one seventh the size of the Moon. It's wow. a little bitty lump of ice. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the scientists at the International Astronomical Union, that's why they voted that it wasn't a planet, because it's not one. Right. <laughs> you know, in, in any astronomical sense, it, it, has, it is so small, it has so little gravity, that it can't even clear the space in its orbit of, of you know, random space junk. Right. Um, it's just, it's a tiny little thing. And it was mistaken for a planet, you know, astro- astronomically speaking, it was mistaken for a planet when it was discovered in 1930. And it turns out that the, the calculations that led people to think that the planet was out there were based on mistaken guesses as to the mass of Uranus and Neptune. Now that we've had space probes orbiting that, we know exactly how big they are, how much they weigh, and so on. Um, the math all works just fine without a big planet out there. Mm-hmm. So we have... So, but. You know, these things don't happen at random. One of the less great lessons of astrology, one of the lessons that, that Carl Jung worked into his theory of synchronicity, is that things like this happen for a reason. And, you know, as, as we were talking about Richard Tarnas, he, point, he was pointing out that the discovery of Uranus, the discovery of Neptune, happened when they happened for good reason. That there was an influence ready to be born into consciousness in human society. In... You know, in 1781, when Uranus was was discovered, 
the idea of the individual as something unique, something whole and holy, some, a strength and a power in and of itself, something that deserved human rights. Mm-hmm. That was brand new, but that was ready to be born. In 1846, when Neptune was discovered, the, the balancing image of what about the whole? What about the unity? What about you know, what we share with other people? What, what is our duty to our neighbor? What is our duty to society? And you have all of these collective issues coming up in 1846. Pluto had a reason to be there. Mm-hmm. And so we had this period of the, this, this Plutonian era born. And as I'd found with previous planets or believed planets that had been downgraded, of course, this has happened before. We can talk about that a bit, you know, in a little. Um, it just as it takes about 30 years for a planetary energy to um, ramp up, it takes about 30 years for a planetary energy to fade out. Right. And so um, 2006 was the downgrading. So by, tw- by 2036, so well, 14 years from now. Um, we can expect by that time the plutonian energy to have descended to the point of being a very minor factor, mm-hmm. equivalent, you know, a factor of, you know that you'd expect from something one four hundredth the size of the Earth. Yes. Um, you know, as 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 power, you know, as powerful as a, as a big asteroid. Um, the fact that Ceres was also upgraded to dwarf planet status, I think, says something. We're, we'll see. We'll hear more about Ceres now. Yeah. But again, they're they're minor factors. They're not they're not planets. They're not the primary dominant um, archetypal forces of the cosmos. Right. And yet, for this time where mm-hmm. human consciousness collectively agreed that Pluto was a planet, its influence was of great eminence and importance, and oh, yeah. did have a tremendous influence and was hugely impactful on oh, yeah. everything. Yeah. We were going. Yeah, no, but between during the period when during between 1930 and 2006, Pluto was a planet in every astrological sense. Exactly. Um, I mean, people people went through um, hell during Pluto transits, and you know, various Plutonian aspects and so on. I knew people who who had dealt with that. It, it and the thing is, some people still seem to be having such issues. Others don't. As far as I have been able to determine, it depends on how Pluto is placed in your natal chart. Mm-hmm. If you have a strongly placed Pluto, you're probably still going to be getting some results. If you have, as I do, a very weakly placed Pluto, it's going to glide on by without without um, having any effect. As I mentioned in the book, I had that same. I found that same thing to be true of Ceres. Mm-hmm. Um, people who have Ceres strongly placed. Um, She's important. Uh, transits and progressions of series actually matter. Those who don't, you know, you probably don't have to worry about her. Yes. So, you know, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I like the um, to describe the way that, that planets affect us. I obviously have always defaulted to what Pythagoras said, the music of the spheres, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which has always made me realize, you know, like I, I used to go to a lot of dance parties and that mm-hmm. means... DJs are playing and DJs always come in. They come in subtly. The DJ that's on starts mixing with the new DJ and they mix in together. So there's a slow fade out of the DJ you're listening to as the new DJ comes on. And they mm-hmm. usually take time with this. It takes, you know, 10, 20 minutes at times, depending 
on how they want to do it. And then same thing when it's time for that DJ to exit, it's not an abrupt stop. It's like a slow mixing out and the new person comes in. Hmm. The planets work exactly this way. And it's certainly Mm -hmm. relevant for understanding the way that Pluto sort of mixed in from 1900 to 1930 and then really had his show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can say he was, he was, he was the DJ. Um, for for that for that period and and now he's you know other other planets are going up you know going up to the the you know to run things a bit and putting in their own music and he's just quietly fading things out right and that that genre of music that was affecting mm-hmm. the way that people were moving is losing its volume it's losing its influence and therefore mm-hmm. We're going to start responding differently on this planet, which is, in my mind, this is not like a silly utopian book, but I found it to be incredibly comforting. And I was overjoyed to see Mm -hmm. the end of this influence Mm -hmm. because as you identified, it's it seems to be the kind of source of a lot of the things that have troubled me my whole life. So Mm Um, the, 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 yeah, the thing is, it's it, it, the world. The world was not perfect before Pluto was discovered, not by a long shot. It will not be perfect once Pluto is finished fading out. But certain problems that came in with Pluto are going away with Pluto, and that, I think that's that's very hopeful because some of those problems are very serious ones. Very, I mean, an opposition to the cosmos is is something that we experience on an everyday level, not just with a lack of beauty in our world mm-hmm. that we build, but I mean, the way that we treat the earth and our and our bodies. You know, I, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know that um, Pluto is traditionally associated with a lot of things, and you really did cover all of them. Um, it always has been associated with uh, psychology, so Freud. Mm-hmm splitting the individual um, has always been associated with the atomic bomb splitting mm-hmm. atom, um, has always been associated with oil and gasoline and the way mm-hmm. that are like, you know, just uh, madly destroying our planet with this greed for its resources. But there's also the association between Pluto and x-rays and other mm-hmm. medical technology that treat the human body as something that needs to just be like savagely split apart and sort of compartmentalized and um, Mm -hmm. mistreated and abused, you know, like the, the idea of a, of a doctor treating you as a whole being is something you have to go outside of the, the bureaucratic paradigm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You, 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 and these days you even, I mean, well, actually, until quite recently, because fortunately there's been some movement in a saner direction, you, even many alternative medical practitioners, they get caught up in that therapeutic model. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at treating systems instead of treating, or treating diseases instead of treating persons. Right. And that produces a lot of very expensive, bad health care, as you know, anybody who's had health care in the United States in the last umpty years knows right. very, very well. Right. And there was um, another identification that you made with Pluto that I've never heard before. And I thought it was just, it's so medicinal. You said that Pluto is the planet of false promises and false hope. Which it, yeah, it's a, it's a planet of hype. hype. Um, yeah, Pluto, come, Pluto came in as this big deal. And then it faded out until it was this tiny little ball of ice that everyone said, oh, okay, whatever. 
in the same way, all of these Plutonian factors are coming in all gangbusters. You, you, you have to go back to what was being written in the 1930s and 1940s to get an idea of what people thought nuclear power was going to do. They expected it to revolutionize life as dramatically as, um, as the discovery of steam power. Mm. Lots of the, the science fiction from the 1940s assumed that people would start their calendars with the beginning of the atomic age. And that this would be, you know, the age of space travel, of intergalactic, um, you know, colonization, all, you know, limitless amounts of energy, blah, de, blah, de, blah. Uh, electricity was supposed to become too cheap to meet her. Mm-hmm. And what's nuclear power amount to now? A small number of insanely expensive, bulky, mostly malfunctioning reactors that, you know, they're, they're not, it's not only not too cheap to meet her, they're too expensive to run. It's a disaster. (laughs) And so in the same way, talk to somebody who grew up right after the Second World War and the days of the duck and cover drills where everybody was sure that there was going to be a nuclear war any day now. Mm -hmm. People who grew up at that time were convinced, kids were convinced they would not live to see adulthood because the Russians are going to bomb us any day now. Mm -hmm. And yet what's happened? At this point, you know, there are still nuclear weapons, but despite all the noise, they have not been used mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And there are people are starting to come to, to realize there are good reasons why they will probably never be used. At this point, I mean, China has really um, kind of shown, kind of called everyone else's bluff. They have like 500 nuclear bombs. Um, the U.S. and Russia have thousands and thousands of them. China has 500. They don't need any more. Because those 500 bombs are enough that their, their counter-strike of somebody with such a nuclear is enough to end history for you know, whoever the assailant is. And that's enough. My guess is that sometime around 2036, there's going to be a comprehensive um, treaty among the various then-nuclear powers, which won't eliminate nuclear weapons, but everyone will go down to like 200 bombs. Mm-hmm. Or down to 100, or just down to some nominal number enough to guarantee that nobody can pull, you know, can pull a pearl, a nuclear pearl harbor, but not enough to threaten life on Earth. Right. Because that's, you know, and everything else, Freudian psychology was to change the world. Nowadays, it's, a, it's mo- mostly considered a failed modality. Um, we, we go on with other examples. Pluto is the planet of overblown hype and of failed promises space travel. <laughs> you know, we could just go on indefinitely. That's, that's the way Pluto is. And so the fading out, that last fading out over the next 14 years is likely to be not a period of bangs and booms and um, you know, dramatic shifts. It's just people going, well, that was a dumb idea, wasn't it? And walking away. Right. Um, like, it's almost like going off on meth collectively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it, it you know, we've 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 been on this very toxic high and we're coming down and it's not we're not going to crash. Yeah. We're just feeling draggy and slow and irritable and oh, that was not a good idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Going off on meth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And running out and being like, oh, my God, that was all in my head. Uh, (laughs) Again, to quote a previous generation, bummer, man. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I I just like the false promises thing just rung in my head so much. Overblown Mm -hmm. hype, 
failures um because that is really that's all that the like the the globalized corporate uh-huh. authoritarian yeah. governments have they they and it's it's widely revealed most people know now that they don't have a plan that makes any sense yeah <laughs> yeah you know here here we have these people who think of themselves as the masters of the world and they're a bunch of clueless dorks who have no notion what to do right <laughs> you know not only does the emperor have no clothes he's not something of someone you want to look at <laughs> no, no, and the, just bring it back to the United States specifically. It's important to note that your book actually was released in February of 2022, which was the mm-hmm. month that the United States had its Pluto return, its exact Pluto return. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. sure it was chosen specifically. Um, and you you mentioned that the United States actually had a particular love and fondness and obsession with Pluto. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, you know, when America turned over a new leaf, if you will, from being, you know, the, the 19th century America that is fun to idealize into this, this globalized imperial power. Mm-hmm. That certainly mm-hmm. It brought a, a a short period of prosperity. I didn't really get to see much of it. Um, a short period mm-hmm. of tremendous prosperity, followed by just a, a a wretched tangle of imperial ideologies and gaslighting and manipulation, mass media, mind control. All of these things are the reality that I mm-hmm. grew up mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And. And all that cover, uh, desperately trying to cover up for the reality of spreading poverty right. and a contracting and a collapsing economy, infrastructure going to bits. This is what has, this, one of the things, this, is, this kind of draws in some of the other things I write about, but the thing that people don't get about empires is that they make a lot of money at the beginning. Yeah. And then they cost more than, than you know, you finished, you finished robbing the rest of the world blind, you strip it to the bare walls, and then what are you going to do? There's no more, right? And so you know you get you, you get all con- you get all used to having all this extra money, and so you're you know you end up broke. Mm-hmm. That's what happened to Britain in the wake of the you know as the British Empire wound down by 1900. Uh, Britain, the British Empire, wasn't even paying for itself, and that's why the British Empire fell apart so disastrously thereafter. Why they couldn't defend themselves against against the Germans. You know, they had to call us in in two world wars to get us to bail them out, and then the United States went and did exactly the same stupid thing. Yeah. Got into the global empire business, didn't even do it as intelligently as the British did. Ran through what you know the our our period of prosperity in very short time. And now we're in the typical downside of that, where it, you know, playing, trying to, you know, keep bases in a hundred countries across the globe, and you know, all this money going into armaments and all this money going to imperial this and quote foreign aid. That's called bribery, by the way, um, and and so on. And we can't afford it. Uh-huh. We're going broke as a nation. Our, our our you know our streets are cracked. Our buildings are falling apart. The whole country is is in a state of increasingly decrepit poverty and 
the only thing the only thing that that can be done to recover and it's the thing that will happen even though the the you know the various puppets on sticks in washington d c that's the last thing they can think of we need to let go of the empire we need to return to focus on our own you know <laughs> fixing things within our own borders for a while absolutely i that that really brings me uh it's a deep joy it's not it's not mm-hmm. happiness it's just a deep warm hearted joy because I've been pretty much brokenhearted my whole life, especially mm-hmm. since we invaded Iraq, because I was old enough to actually care. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was, I was just that was yeah. I think I think a lot of people, a lot of people in your generation, and in, in in the generations right around then, that was that that was a truly miserable moment watching you know watching this country betray everything it it claimed to stand for, in an attempt to steal another country's oil. Right, right. It was, um, yeah, just the ultimate, the ultimate betrayal of humanity, and then the ultimate gaslighting that hasn't stopped. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. The thing, the thing is, and and you can watch it getting worse and worse and worse as they desperately try to pretend that everything's okay and that and that nobody disagrees with them. The fact that social media is as crazily censored as it is now shows you the narrative's going to bits. Right, one hundred percent. Um, and one thing that I love about nature itself, which, mm-hmm. which we are, you know, is that mm-hmm. the thing is, is that they they can try to pour as much concrete over the human imagination and the human spirit as they want. But there's always this strength to break through and just crack through mm-hmm. and not only mock them, but also uh, develop such a craving for truth and such a craving to be mm-hmm. in alignment with the cosmos, such a desire that's so strong. Mm-hmm. Like it is an equal force of opposition to mm-hmm. this, this ideology, this way of living. And that's what I am a part of. And that's what I'm very comforted by because mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, they miscalculate a lot of the time. <laughs> um, they, 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 they've forgotten what Isaac Newton said. Every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. So all that pouring of concrete generates its own nemesis, its own blowback. Exactly. And so, you know, and so they end up, they end up constantly fighting crises that they themselves have created. And everything they do, you know, generates more blowback. So, yeah, if you are in tune with cosmos, you don't have to do that. That's the, the, the old thing that the Taoists had of the yin and the yang. If you can move with the yin and move with the yang, you, can, you, you don't get caught up in this kind of quarrel. But if you're trying to come on strong all the time, if you're trying to say, you know, we, we control the world, we tell everyone what to do, we, we tell you what the truth is, et cetera, ad nauseam, it's going to blow up in your face. Exactly. Oh, not just once, over and over and over until finally the obvious lesson is learned. Right. And that's that's why I'm happy that we are now in the Pluto return in the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and how like appropriate that at this time when the empire is dying, Mm-hmm. Um, the the president the symbol of the the leadership in this country is literally like a walking corpse he's like a zombie you know it's just so hellish but also hilarious if you're in a dark mood like i often i guess say if if you if you if you have a sense of bleak humor yeah the current situation it's it's very appropriate and it's also of course incredibly reminiscent of what happened to the soviet union mhm 
Um, I've one back back when I was doing a lot of writing about peak oil and the future industrial society. Um, I used to appear at, at conferences with a guy named Dmitry Orlov, and he had grown up in in the Soviet Union, and then his family came to America when he was a teenager. And he had this talk that he gave about how um, the United States was basically going the same way as the Soviet Union. It was making all the same mistakes, and it would crash and burn the same way that the Soviet mm-hmm. Union did. And people were at the time were going, nah, or they were going, wow, what an interesting idea. Nowadays, people who remember that are going, oh, yeah, I think Dmitry just about called it. Because we have our Yuri Andropov, we have our Konstantin Chernenko, our, our you know, senile old man pretending to go through the motions of leadership. Yes. And we have our Politburo that has no clue what's happening six inches outside of the, you know, the, the sheltered little bubble where they live, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, interesting. You know, I actually had the, the, uh, the, I guess the, the counterpart that I found was uh, King George. It was a different mm-hmm. era, not the Plutonian era, but when mm-hmm. this country had its great revolution, we were fighting against a king who was syphilitic and mad, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That is not a comparison that occurred to me, but you know, a case could be made. (laughs) And we are coming up on the 250th anniversary of that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I guess say in in, in, uh, 2025 is the anniversary of of Lexington Concord and Bunker Hill. Right. And, you know, it's important to think about because you go, you know, how like the horror of growing up to become your mother or your father, you know, that horror mm-hmm. realization that strikes you. <laughs> well, here we are with like the poison of the British Empire in the wound and mm-hmm. it flourished and became a, a very similar situation in a lot of ways. And yeah, our, mm-hmm. we have a King George right now. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, um, that's, a great sign for me because I want us to give up the empire. I want the world to change in this direction. I am very pleased mm-hmm. with that. Um, as you said, I mean, I live in Los Angeles and it's pretty well known and recognized that it's, it's a third world country here in terms of how much poverty and homelessness there mm-hmm. is in your face everywhere. It's nothing you can ignore. It's not a part of town. It's not just Skid Row in downtown. It's not Mm -hmm. something that you can pretend isn't happening. It's an everyday confrontation with real human suffering and tragedy. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. no goddamn sense. Um, It's it's just everywhere there's a freeway, there's Mm -hmm. people living in tents underneath the freeway in in stacks it's not one person it's not a lone mm-hmm. person finding a corner no 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 you know no. um so you can't ignore that here and it's been going on for well over a decade at that level mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know at some point like the 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 confrontation and the reality needs to strike and i think it really is now because mm-hmm. there's no more hiding from the truth. There's no more pretending that things are going well. There's no more um, easy breezy alliance with the the vision of where our country is headed. And I think that, that yeah, that and that that vision, the the whole um, onward and upward, the mythology of perpetual progress. The um, you know we're heading off toward a glorious future that we saw on the you know television last month. Mm-hmm. It's failed. Mm-hmm. It's 
done. Stick a fork in it. It's done. We need to look at new futures. Right. Futures that haven't been envisioned yet, because everyone's been caught up in this Plutonian, you know, sort of um, lowbrow science fiction fantasy right. of, you know, the giant male penises and so on. Um, we need to create new futures. Right. This is, this is where Uranus and Neptune are really coming to their own, because um, as, as Pluto fades out as the outermost planet, the planet that defines the, the, the space within which the solar system operates, Neptune is taking on that dignity, is taking on that power. And Uranus becomes, again, the balance to, to Neptune. So you have Neptunian compassion and a sense of unity. You have Uranian independence and a sense of the, the dignity and rights of the individual. And but in a balance between those two, and a conflict, because, you know, the planets, the planets <laughs> they, they have their squares and oppositions as well as their trines. Um, you know, in that, I think we can find our way to a different future that actually works. Yes. It's going to be a very different future, and it's not going to have as much, um, as much gaudy wealth mm-hmm. and as, much, as many conveniences. As, you know, the people get very soft and very, very fixated on comforts doing, you know, if they live in an empire. And when we no longer do, mm-hmm. eh, we're not going to be quite so, you know, those of us, the, those in the comfortable classes are not going to be anything like so high on the hog. Yes, and I'm I'm sure it's going to be a very awkward and difficult mm-hmm. transition in a lot of ways. But at the same time, I mean, the, the future we're supposed to be hurtling towards, again, as you said, based on the myth of progress, it's all culminating in this like nonsensical, transhumanist, virtual reality future that mm-hmm. nobody wants, but they keep shoving it down our throat. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to mm-hmm. live in the metaverse. Nobody wants to be... I mean, I guess some people want to live forever bionically, but I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know, okay. We're going to put your brain in a jar and hook you up to a virtual reality. How fun. I just, it, Please. So crazy. I know, the, yeah. I mean, the, the whole, the, the whole, met, the whole metaverse business, come on. I mean, awesome. they tried, they tried that with Google glasses and you recall how well that caught on. I, yes, and. I- I do. It's laughable. These are false promises and overhype again, you know, like exactly. it's, it's, it's the last hurrah of the Plutonian era. You know, this, we're going to, we're going to sell you on this, this dream of virtual reality. And what it, what it amounts to is you're sitting there staring at a screen at third rate animation. Right. And you can, you can move around in the third rate an, animation if you want to, but <laughs> come on. Right. Uh- <laughs> And, you know, like, that's what I I love about the fact that, yes, Uranus and Neptune are still going to be going strong. Oh, yeah. We we will have great art. We will still have immersive experiences. We will still have cinema. We will still have all of these wonderful things that give us a sense of evolution and that stimulate the imagination, that create collective experiences. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the false promise and the overhype of this like nonsensical conclusion to the Plutonian era, transhumanism, mm-hmm. universe. I'm so grateful mm-hmm. that it's uh, petering out, it's fizzling out, and it's hilarious for me to watch as they kind of writhe around and pretend like it's still happening. And <laughs> that 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 has been that has been one of my great entertainments now since I started blogging, which was in 2006. 
Wow. Um, curiously, right about the same time that Pluto got. Um, it was I, I, I started blogging a few months in advance mm-hmm. of Pluto's demotion. And because I was talking from, from the beginning of my blogging career about the twilight of the, of the Industrial Age and the end of America's empire and the transition we're going to have to make to a very different kind of way of living, and I'd get always all these people on the one hand pushing the Plutonian, no, no, the future is limitless. We're going to go zooming off to the stars next Thursday. And on the other hand, the equally Plutonian, no, no, we're all going to die in a horrible catastrophe next Thursday. (laughs) And I'm sitting here going, no, we're not going to do either of those. And, you know, 2006 was a while ago. And we've been through a whole series of these predicted moments when this amazing thing was going to happen or this horrible thing was going to happen. We're all going to die because of this. We're all going, you know, fusion power is going to have its breakthrough by, and none of it's happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I confess, I am, I, I, I am not, I am not kind enough to avoid pointing this out to people. You know, when we went through the whole 2012 of business, and I talked about that in advance, I actually had a, an Apocalypse of the Month club for the, or the Apocalypse of the Week club, actually, in the year leading up to 2012, talking about all the other failed um, great turning points in history and apocalyptic transformations. Uh-huh. I, I, could, I could have kept it on for a decade. There's not that many. But, yeah, talking about how nothing is going to happen. Deal. And when nothing happened, oh, I got some, I got some tirades. But this is the thing. This is the thing. Pluto is the planet of hype. Mm -hmm. And if you buy into a Plutonian fantasy that everything's going to be different, you're going to be disappointed. Things will change. Mm -hmm. Things will morph in various ways. We can, and we can usually figure out what they are, but it's not going to be a, you know, we're all, you know, suddenly rising to a new level of consciousness. And only if we work our way there one step at a time, we're not all going to die in a sudden catastrophe. You know, we all do die, but one at a time. And, 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 and trying to get people to see through the Plutonian smoke Mm-hmm. And actually notice the cosmos around them, and, but but you know that's it's been difficult. But I have had the, you know the 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 not especially kindly pleasure of being able to say, yeah, you know what you're saying about the apocalypse last week. <laughs> so, well, I mean, somebody has to do it. I I feel like, <laughs> you know, uh, one of the 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 parts of astrological history that I love that I laugh at so mm-hmm. much. When Voltaire threw out astrology with total disdain, which I completely understood because from his perspective, he was like, Mm -hmm. these people had become, they'd become grim, fear-mongering, monarch-serving, state-loving fascists, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm use any of those words, but that's essentially where he was coming from. These were, these were, you know, boot licking, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, fear mongers, uh, just the way. Mm -hmm. They were high priests of the state, just like our, mm-hmm. our not not real scientists, but scientists that work for the government, journalists mm-hmm. that work for mass media. These people, <laughs> economists, economists. Do not forget. Please do not forget the economists. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. These doomsday fear mongers. Uh-huh. Their special knowledge, which at the time was astrology and also religion, you know, but they use whatever special knowledge they claim to have to produce the same effect. And, you know, you were just standing up against that, which I think is important. It's fresh and it's, it's also. I, I try. 
Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, um, it's an interesting um, thing to give a little bit of common sense in a moment where people are hysterical mm-hmm. and when they're whipped mm-hmm. up into a frenzy and when people are afraid, they can't think. And you're just like able to think because you're not afraid and offering mm-hmm. that perspective is important, especially now. Just, yeah. Just <laughs> especially now when we've got the, the fear, you know, the, the fear bullhorns cranked up to 11 and all the media yelling, be afraid of this, be afraid of this, be afraid of this, all the time. Right. You can tell how frightened they are. Right. Because, because if, people, if people actually, like, turn, turn off, you know, well, I, I, I generally put this somewhere in a podcast, might as well put, put it now. The one thing, the thing that you can do to improve your life um, and give yourself a better future, the single most useful thing is to take your television and throw it in the nearest dumpster. <laughs> okay, turn it off. It's like, it's like there, was a, there was something in, I think it was The Onion a while ago, health experts recommend that the best thing to do about stress at work is get up from your desk, walk away from your job, and never go back. Mm, nice. In the same way, the best way to deal with the stress that's coming from your TV, I don't recommend doing what one of my college professors did and emptying a revolver through the thing. Oh, my God. He blew every, he blew every fuse in the house, and it was kind of <laughs> awkward. But, but no, I, I mean... Um, the last television my wife and I ever owned, we, we did not, um, buy it. It was given to us by my brother-in-law who could not stand the thought that we didn't have a television. Mm -hmm. And, um, I dropped it from a second story fire escape into a dumpster. Mm -hmm. The flash and bang when the picture two imploded was frankly more entertaining than anything that had ever been, you know, on that screen. (laughs) Well, so, you, you know, seriously, seriously, the best thing you could just, you know, um, stay away from the media. It's just there to make you afraid, to make you insecure, to make you obedient. I could not agree more. Um, I actually, we don't have television. We watch Yay. movies. We do watch movies. My husband. Oh, that's, you know, if, you, if, you, if, you want to, if you want to watch movies that you choose without the advertisements, when you want to see them, that's fine. Totally. I mean, it's the it's the constant, you know, we're going to tell you what to watch. We're going to feed all this stuff into you. And by the way, buy our lousy product. That's right. the thing that I object to. This is why I actually, my first interest in magic was actually, well, okay. My first interest in magic was when I uh, cast a love spell in 10th grade, which was a mistake, but a hilarious one. And I learned a lot. <laughs> Outside of that, my my adult interest in magic was specifically because I wanted to learn how to decondition myself of the program. Mm-hmm. I was very aware. Yes. Would. And and that's exactly what my interest in magic has always been: deconditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because I'm aware, like I have, I have my own imagination. Why the mm-hmm. hell are these people telling me what to think and what to wear and how to live? And I just, I really resent that as a free. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, hey, that's yeah. great. <laughs> it is great. It, it's fantastic. It's given me uh, a tremendous amount of freedom, and I, I could be, I could be more free, I suppose. But um, I didn't suffer from fear uh, mm-hmm. in the same way that other people were mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. the pandemic. I didn't, I didn't freak out. I was, I was resentful of being confined. <laughs> I, was, mm-hmm. I, I know the, I know the feeling. I have, I have the huge advantage of working from home as a full-time writer, so there, was, <laughs> there were some problems I didn't have to deal with. Yes. But it was annoying to yeah. have to do you know, all this stuff for a disease with a 99.98% survival rate. Oh. But, you know, whatever. 
Yeah, I was, but, but I was like, but I have never felt so, I felt truly separated from mm-hmm. other people because I, I could observe how freaked out they were. And I, I just wasn't. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, it, it affected me, of course, like it affected everybody. We could not escape it, but I really wasn't afraid. And I was grateful, very, very grateful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I realized, mm-hmm. wow, I, it was almost like a return on investment after mm-hmm. my years of just doing what I could to think for myself, not always succeeding, but nevertheless, giving it a really good try as often as mm-hmm. I um, and not exposing myself to corporate media. Um, mm-hmm. I was blessed with presence of mind and I was able to handle myself. And yeah, I Excellent. also come home. No, that, that's, that's, that, that, is, that is really encouraging to hear. I hear this um, a fair amount from other people who, who are practitioners of magic, who are practitioners of various kinds of mysticism and, and personal spirituality. And it's always... You know, one of those sigh of relief things, okay, there are sane people in the world, there are people who have gotten themselves free of the fear machine. Absolutely, 100%, you know, um, and it's because of everything I've been through, which is also mm-hmm. a, a great message for the stress that this Plutonian era has put on humanity. There is purpose in it. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have become like interested in magic or removed myself from the mass culture if it had not offended me so much, if it had not pushed. So yeah. 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 Oh, I know that. I, in, in my case, in my case, it was a different issue when, cause I, I got, I got interested in magic very young and it was because the world that was being presented to me by the media, by the schools, by my mm-hmm. culture was so boring yeah. I was growing up in I I grew up in in the in the Seattle suburbs. Yeah. Okay. You were talking about oh, Los Angeles is a place where there's nothing old. Um try the South Seattle suburbs. In Seattle, if something was built in the 1880s, it is incredibly antique. Yeah, here too. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just um the 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 house where I spent much of my childhood, 25 years before I was born, it was a chicken farm. 50 years before that, it was wilderness with bears. <laughs> so, you know, so it was this just this sort of vacuous suburban emptiness, all of the disadvantages of living in the country and living in the city with none of the benefits of either. And so I was I so I, I became just obsessed with the idea that there had to be more to life than that. What's the, the Maurice Sendak thing? Higgledy piggledy pop, there must be more to life. Um I, I was there before he was. And um, that led me into researching all kinds of weird things. Into I mean, I was an expert on werewolf trivia by by age ten, and then eventually to magic, mm-hmm. and then you know first the sort of adolescent thing, not in the sense of love spells, but just in the sense of I want to know this stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. I want that con- that connectedness to the spiritual realm, mm-hmm. and then from there after do after doing some practices, doing some work, and going. Holy crap! This stuff is real. Yeah, <laughs> and then getting you know getting progressively deeper and deeper into it, and you know that's the story of my life. Yes, yeah, um, I I totally relate to that, and you know just as to add another layer to that strange mm-hmm. experience, um, I grew up in a small suburb right outside of Los Angeles called Simi Valley, and it's now home to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. It's true. <laughs> um. <laughs> more strange <Lucky> you <laughs> my like 1970s tract home neighborhood which is where i grew up was right it was like 
right in back of, or right in front of, I should say, in back of my neighborhood, meaning I could look in my backyard at these hills, was a place called Big Sky Ranch. Big mm-hmm. Sky Ranch is where they filmed Little House on the Prairie and a bunch of other mm-hmm. ones. So when I was growing up, like as I got a little bit older and a little more sophisticated in my thinking, I was like, there's a simulation of a 19th century rural countryside going on in the back of my house. Like I, I live. Wow. A 1970s suburban tract home. And it's, you know, it's the nineties and the, Mm -hmm. my backyard essentially is a movie set that's there to simulate real life for people in another century. And it really tripped me out. And I was like, Uh uh I need, I need some, I need a real connection. I need to know like what's really going on in the world, not just have everything be about how it relates to the entertainment industry, which is a big deal here, but it was so strange. I thought like there, it's not like a real ranch. It's a movie set. And I, Mm -hmm. I wanted to connect with things that were real, real history, real, Mm -hmm. real history. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what wet my appetite for um, Mm -hmm. magic as well in that way, like a real connection with the land, not like, Mm But uh, yeah, television, you know, it, it, it's one of the things, just corporate media now, whatever it is, you could get it on the mm-hmm. internet. It depends on oh, yeah. the web. Um, but uh, surf the web, that's so 90s. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> so that- <laughs> um, the, the idea of centralized authority, which... My, you know, my understanding of the Plutonian era is that it's just an increasingly centralized authority that's asserting itself, asserting its dominance over the whole world, um, which certainly has its epicenter in the United States, but it's not, it's not confined to the United States. It's something outside of the nation state. It's this like mm-hmm. huge amount of centralized power, this bureaucracy that rules mm-hmm. the world. And I'm so happy to know, because that is opposite to the cosmos. That's not how yeah. na- nature is infinite variety. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Nature mm-hmm. is infinite variety and mutual reciprocity and, you know, pollination of many different things. And mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not natural to have a centralized authority that's feeding the whole world their ideas. And, and especially when it, when it's a centralized authority that doesn't, it's not a solar centralized authority um, no. like an empire. You know, you don't have there. There is no there is no person you know whose face is on is on the, on the money uh, on the, the the currency who you know is the central son of the system. Where there's no place where you can take your your complaints and get them answered. There's no. It's this faceless, diffuse, um, in some ways secretive. Mm-hmm. Network. I mean, the people who censor Twitter, who are now, of course, melting down as a result of the recent purchase by Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. The people, the people who work in the, in their censorship department, um, you know, excluding any any ideas that they think are bad. Um, you can't talk to them. You can't go to them. You can't say. You know. Uh, you can't appeal to them. They're just. You know. They're sitting there in their. You know. In in their. Um, Silicon Valley offices deciding whether ideas are going to are, are, are allowed into their network or not. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of, it's centralized but it's not in the center. It's not in a, a visible center. 
And so, yeah, so it's this very Plutonian, very, um, you know, we are not, we are not part of your world, but we, we manipulate your world. Right. We're outside of your solar system and we're, we're outside of your solar system, but we draw the boundary along it and we say what comes in, what goes out. Wow. And so, and yeah, and that's, that's, it's a very Plutonian kind of model. And that's, that's the, the thing, it's been going on for a very long time, but it's cracking. And that's why it's becoming so visible right now. It is cracking. And that, to me, I'm overjoyed, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. uh, speaking of that, I had a strange experience once I, uh, in mm-hmm. 2016, I was invited to speak at um, a, an astrology conference called the International Society for Astrological Research. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just, I was invited as a very junior, I gave a little talk, you know, it was not a huge deal, but um, it was, it was a new experience. So I went there and I met some people and um, I met this, there was a whole world of financial astrologers there. Uh And I met the student of Ray Merriman, who's like the top financial astrologer in the world. And they, they, they attribute a lot of significance to Pluto and financial astrology. Mm-hmm. And I heard from this, so it is hearsay, but you know, why not bring it up? Because it's relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, he told me that George Soros and several other people who lurk in the shadows actually learn financial astrology so that they can use Pluto transit specific ones to mm-hmm. collapse economies in, in third world countries, second mm-hmm. world, just for fun, mm-hmm. it's like a game for them. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was horrified. I'm like, that is, oh my God, that's probably true. <laughs> like, I mm-hmm. just, oh, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all. The, the, the thing, the thing that has, the, the thing that has to happen, of course, is that this information needs to get into circulation and people in third world countries, people mm-hmm. who run the economies there can figure out how to stop them. Because right. if you know that something's, you, okay, here's this transit coming up. How do we need to cut certain connections and strengthen our economies in this way and um, extend a large middle finger to Mr. Soros and the like? Right. Um, because you can do that. You know, the, 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 uh, fools, fools are ruled by their stars, but the wise govern their stars. Exactly. So, you know, exactly. yeah. And the fact that that information trickled down to me. I am not. I am not in politics. I am not an economist, and I have mm-hmm. no business knowing that. Actually, the fact that it trickled down to me when I was just there to talk about, you know, I was there to talk. Actually, I was there to talk about apocalyptic uh, imagination and the kind of the millenarian quality that a lot of astrology. Mm-hmm. So I was there to give a little talk on that. So I guess it was rather Plutonian, although it wasn't specifically. And then I get this information just handed to me, and I was like. Mm-hmm. That is not only interesting, but it's also a sign that it is cracking because that should be mm-hmm. that should be pretty shadowy and secret. But it was just being it, it should be utterly secret because if it's if that's public again, once you know what they're doing, once you lose once they lose operational security, it becomes very difficult for them to play their games. Exactly. So I was like, dude, this is just falling apart, and and how. <laughs> How hilarious, because it's just, it's it's nothing more than like the awful psychology of a bitter black magician who's hexing and cursing everyone because they can't mm-hmm. just having a conversation, a difficult one, or or just, you know, moving on and forgiving somebody. You know, they can't mm-hmm. have the adult mm-hmm. responsibility of holding emotions, mm-hmm. uh, moving through emotions. So they then... Mm-hmm. They, go into a private place and in secret strike against their enemies. And, and just, 
yeah, just just pile uh, pile up nastiness in their own destiny. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, one, one of the, one of the reasons I'm very glad to see things like financial astrology, things like mundane astrology, getting more um, more public awareness, more people learning that there's astrology beyond the natal chart, is precisely that the more people know how to read these things, the harder it will be for the bad, the ill-intentioned to to make you know malicious use of them. And the easier it will be for everyone to look at what's you know what's coming up in the next ingress chart in your mundane astrology or what have you, or what's coming up in these financial astrology things and go, okay, we need to make these changes here, we need to do that there. It looks like it's going to be a rough time. You know, we yeah. can. The more people know how to do that, the less stupidity happens, and the more um, the, the more sensible um, adjustments we can have. I couldn't agree more. It, it it's more aligned. It'll be more strategic, and mm-hmm. I I think that's even true with uh, personal natal chart astrology in the oh, context yeah. of like, you know, for example, I used to be a school teacher, and mm-hmm. um, though it might seem very invasive. Uh, to to use somebody's natal chart in a wrong manner, uh, just knowing the birthday of your student gives you some real insight into how many mm-hmm. types of people there are. And um, rather than expecting everybody to behave exactly the same way, um, mm-hmm. conform to one standard, which is utterly ridiculous, mm-hmm. just that kind of nuanced knowledge of the complexity or the ecology of spirit that somebody mm-hmm. has, um, it gives you so much more, not only compassion, but also strategy for helping them. Like I actually, okay. I've been a private tutor for many years as well. Not currently right now, but just knowing the mercury placement of my students has helped oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. That would be, that, 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 I could, I could see that. I mean, natal astrology is still something that I'm not all that good at. I focused on, um, elect, electional astrology, um, horary astrology and mundane astrology; those are the things that I've concentrated on. But yeah, I could definitely see work with if you're in a teaching situation, knowing mm-hmm. the um, knowing the Mercury placement. I know Carl Jung um, when he w- when he was a working psychologist, he would always draw up the horoscope of his patient. Right, it's so. Helpful. And he would lo- yeah, he'd look at that and say, okay, you know, placement of the moon shows this, and so especially the placement of the moon is a way of tracking the shadow and things like this. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's as above, so below. Help the individual Mm -hmm. actually be that whole and holy being um, Mm -hmm. that's meant to be understood rather than Mm -hmm. part. And, um, and then of course, like you said, the, the experiences of the collective, the nation states, uh, the economies, these things will be far more gracefully navigated Mm -hmm. with uh, a mundane astrology renaissance, which honestly, I think your book has, is really spearheading uh, a renaissance in mundane astrology, which is greatly needed because the other mm-hmm. about mundane astrology, it has no reputation. It's very difficult uh, to mm-hmm. find anybody who has any respect for it. I am interested in it, but there's so many public. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there are, there were a couple of, I, I, I will mention right now it is, it's still in preparation but my next book on astrology is going to be a manual of, of uh, traditional mundane astrology, focusing on ingress charts. Fantastic. And it's it's most of the way done. But there's there's actually a very specific reason why mundane astrology has had a lousy reputation. And if you know what happened, it, it's understandable. Um, CEO Carter, Charles Carter, who was the uh, the dean of British astrologers in the 1930s, 
in the spring of 1939, um, he was at a, he held a, there was this big London, uh, I think it was Harrowsmith um, astro- astrology conference. And he gave this big speech, which was splashed all over the media about how there was not going to be war that year, because here's what the ingress chart showed, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was 1939. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> We know what happened. Um, That really, really hurt the reputation of mundane astrology. The problem was that, A, Carter did a really poor job of of delineating that ingress chart. Um, In in one of my subscribers' charts, I've actually walked through what happened to the chart. That'll be in the book, too. What were the obvious mistakes that he made? And they were howlers. But the problem was that Charles Carter had a reason to make those mistakes. If you read his editorials, he was Mm. Mm pro-Nazi. So he did not want there to be a war between Britain and Germany because he wanted Britain on Germany's side. Uh, there was, you know, there was a, a, a large minority of, of British um, conservatives at that time who had that opinion. He was one of them, and when he's talking about how, you know, um, the the um, British and the Germans are racially so similar, you, you know what that's what he's saying. Of course, and you know, and so yeah, and so the problem with mundane astrology is that you have to be able to look at a chart that says your side is going to lose. Yeah. And you have to be able to delineate it honestly. And that means that requires a willingness to step back from partisan passions, mm-hmm. from your own opinions, your own wants. And very few people are willing to do that. I remember in, in 2016, again, um, most of the people who cast charts for the election insisted, well, of course, Hillary's going to win. There were a few people who actually read what the chart said and said, no, it's going to be Trump is going to squeak by. Yeah. But I would- it was really, really embarrassing to what? a lot of astro- astro- astrologers because they made fools of themselves because they they predicted what they wanted, not what the chart said. Go ahead. Um, so that same conference, the ISAR in 2016, mm-hmm. um, the purpose of that conference was to predict the election. Mm-hmm. It was a fabulous education for me because I did not only I was not only there to witness the entire panel of the best of the best predict wrong um but their (laughs) predictions were published in the guardian i mean their predictions were published in like top top Uh papers and publications and and i got to see behind the scenes what was going on Uh and i i found it to be it was devastating to me because i saw exactly that i saw a bunch of aging dnc hardcore Hillary fans, essentially, just fans, uh-huh. and um, mm-hmm. they refused to give up that like end of history neoliberal ideology. They mm-hmm. were more dedicated to their ideology than they were to the astrology, and as a result, I watched them using an incredible amount of overly complicated, literally medieval techniques grasping at straws, trying to find anything that would tell them what they wanted to hear, like wow. through the numbers, what they wanted to see. I, I am going to have to hunt that down because um, doing a, doing a, um, a post-mortem on that will be extremely useful for my Monday Astrology book. Put that next to... Oh, God. Um, look it up. Next it's, to, yeah. I, I will look up the, the, ISA, the ISAR conference in 2016. 2016 yeah. In Orange County. And... Um, 
and I was, I, I was, I was very aware of what was going on at the time. I was, I was being very quiet inside mm-hmm. and I was like, isn't, um, isn't this the time truly astrology has a terrible reputation for being a science, but I'm like, it can be a science if you take an objective perspective and try to come up with a hypothesis that is actually educated. And then also you have to be honest, just like you said, you can't be partisan. You can't just mm-hmm. fit. Cause then, you know, what the hell it's nothing. You don't need numbers or math or any technique at all. You can just make a wild guess. You have a, <laughs> what, the point? You know, I'm like, what the hell's the point of this? And it was, there was no opposition. It was a 100% in agreement. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I, I was like, you know, I don't know anything about mundane astrology in any complex way. I don't have these techniques and I didn't know all of the the measurements that they were using. I actually really they were getting extremely esoteric. They, they would they would have to because the the ingress chart was not favorable. It was not it was not cut and dried. I have to give them this. It was not cut and dried. It was not definitely saying Hillary is doomed. Trump is going to is going to waltz into office. It, but it was saying it was very tight, and it was not. It did not favor the Democrats. Um, the uh, American Federation of Astrologers they they actually um, published a prediction in their newsletter, which I was getting in those days, that um, that Trump would win. Right. So there were some people who were paying attention to that. But yeah, if you took a fair look at at the ingress charts, um, it was very clear that it was going to be an uphill slog for Hillary. She was going to have to work very hard and get past her own ego. Right. And if she couldn't do that, she was doomed. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I mean, I'm like, you don't have to be an astrologer to know that she can't do that. So hello. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, I always I always like to, to, to leave people the benefit of the doubt, especially, you know, when they're this is something that, that she spent her entire life desperately wanting. Yeah. She desperately wanted to become president. That was the that was the you know, the the holy grail for her. And people have occasionally risen to that kind of challenge. Mm-hmm. And, but she but she didn't. No. And she she just stayed inside her little circle of, of yes people and got told what she wanted to hear, and well you know as we as we as we learned from some of the from the, the book that was written by a couple of her staffers afterwards, um, the she did what she thought would win, what would appeal to people, not what people wanted to hear. You know, people wanted needed to hear if they were going to be appealed to. Right. Uh, well, but yeah, it was, but yeah, that, that's the thing. I mean, I saw that, I saw that sort of thing all over the place in 2016. Right. And, and so it's very much the same kind of thing. That's why I really, uh, that was my, it was a great moment for me as a student of astrology. It was a fantastic experience just getting to witness all of that and getting to ponder it afterwards. And I still am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it immediately when I read your book because I was like, you know, the, I, I do want mundane astrology to matter. It It is interesting to me. It is important. And that's why mm-hmm. I loved your book so much. And I appreciate that you're actually becoming a leader of mundane astrology because I did observe that we need a specific kind of person. It's not the astrology that's wrong. It's the minds that are behind it's, it. It's the astrologer. <laughs> and what what we need, if I may, if I may say, we need geeks. Yeah. 
no, I, I am one. Okay, I, I, I freely I freely acknowledge I am an astrology and magic geek. We need geeks. We need the people like me with Asperger's syndrome who don't care what other people say, and who simply focus on the data and say, well, I'm sorry to say this, but this is what's going. You know, this is what the chart says, and it doesn't matter what you want. Right. I, if I, if I may throw a brief tantrum, one of the things that drives me absolutely um, to distraction about what we might as well call Plutonian astrology, the sort of astrology of personality, the kind of thing that became popular around 1930, where it's not about, it's not about prediction. It's not about knowing the cosmic, um, what, what the cosmos is trying to say to you. It's basically telling the universe what you want and expecting to get it. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about choice-centered astrology. We hear a lot about um, astrology, you know, the, the sort of astrology that focuses on possibility and what you want. And there are no malefic planets. And there are no bad aspects. Bull feathers, there aren't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so that there, there's so much of that nonsense. And just getting back to the point where you can, where you can say to people, um, you know, you give a reading to people. I, I used to do this when I was when I was doing pagan conferences earlier in my career. I go to these conferences and set up a table and do geomancy readings. Geomancy is a little like horror astrology, and yeah. there's some real similarities. And I would I would tell people, this will give you straight up answers to real world questions. Do not ask the question if you do not want to hear the answer. If you ask, will I achieve my my fondest dream? It may say no, and if it does. It may be right. Mm. So be careful. And I would, the, the way I'd do it was I'd ask people to pay. After the reading was over, they could pay me whatever they thought it was worth. And on more than one occasion, I had somebody get up in a blind rage because having asked you know, exactly that kind of question, I cast the chart, and it was, no, this is not going to happen. They would try to argue me into, find, in, into saying yes anyway. And then they'd get up in a tirade and throw a penny in my face. <laughs> and storm away because my job as a diviner, you know, gall darn it, was to tell them what they wanted to hear. <laughs> I call that uh, fluffing your aura. Some people just want yeah. their aura fluffed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, they need to go down to an aura salon or something. That's not what my sign said. Well, and I try to I try to warn people, but you know, real astrology can be the same way. You know, somebody says I want to make it in in, in like acting, and you're looking at the fifth house and so on, and going, no, <laughs> honey, no. Um, try you know to, to consider accounting instead. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's all right to have opposition to you as well. Like I, I definitely teach, I teach astrology, how to read natal charts. And I always try to emphasize how good opposition is like it actually. Oh, yeah. And um, even if you told them that, no, go into accounting, you can't become an actor. And let's just say you were wrong. That's mm-hmm. a triumphant story now that they get to live out. They get to live out the triumphant story of having like mm-hmm. proof proven you wrong and i'm like so somebody told you it's not bad it's like it's like like the 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 old story about the ballet teacher who always you know if you and i've I've known this in in writing you know somebody asks do you think i have what it takes to be a writer the only possible answer to say is no yeah because if that is enough to make the person go oh and slink away and not write again then they don't have what it takes to be a writer exactly that's exactly (laughs) if you're gonna be a writer you had better 
want to do it more than anything else because it's going to take that kind of discipline and focus to actually get through, jump through all the necessary hoops and get your stuff in print and, and deal with the fact that only 200 people buy, the first, buy, buy your first book in the first year. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's one thing that I, I actually have found a positive quality to debilitated planets, which the ruler of my chart is Jupiter and Capricorn. So I've had to... <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you get to deal with that puppy. Yeah, it it is tough, but I I I appreciate it. I appreciate the the grit. I appreciate the struggle. It's giving me character, and I have to mm-hmm. I have to mm-hmm. acknowledge that it does not make it easy for me to mm-hmm. access Jupiterian bounty. That's true. That's a part of the story of my life. But I don't feel uh, sore about it. I don't feel like that's a problem. I just mm-hmm. I have to work a certain way and at a certain level with a mm-hmm. certain amount of tenacity to get where I want to go. And I mm-hmm. like that because mm-hmm. you know, I I don't work for anybody else. I work for myself. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of sacrifice and struggle in that. But I have what it takes to do it because I know what that's like. I know what that yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the, you know one of the things that I appreciate that the, the psychological astrologers have pointed out that squares and oppositions can be a major source of strength in your chart. And debilitated planets. They can be tough, but they're a source of strength. You get somebody who's all trines and sextiles and planets where they belong, and they tend to be kind of mushy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I I have a lot of good placements as well, like that. There you go. Yeah. I'm weak and soft in those places. Like, my, one of my biggest struggles when I was a small child was I have a Mercury in Virgo in the 10th house. You know, I'm very bright, very quick. Uh, I didn't have to study until way later in life. I didn't have to study. Mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I could memorize everything, make it look like I knew everything. And it was easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank God I had a genuine interest in learning and stuff. It wasn't all fake. But for the most part, in terms of I had no test anxiety. I didn't struggle in school. It was just easy, easy. Um mm-hmm. Until later. And then I finally hit a wall where I was being challenged. And I actually was, I was weak and I had no muscles because I wasn't having to study. And I'm like, there you go. That's how a great placement can make you lazy. And Mm -hmm. that's how a a debilitated planet can make you strong. But Mm -hmm. yeah, but to deny that there's any contrast or any difference um, or that we don't have limitations to me, that's insane. I mean, we are, we're born in physical bodies that have certain attributes, proclivities, talents. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You can play basketball if you're too short, but not professionally. You know, you have, there's limits. Yeah. Exactly. You know, if you, if you have a hard time carrying a tune, you may be able to play, to sing and play music to your own satisfaction, but you probably shouldn't plan on a career in it. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that's okay. You know, yeah. I feel like, uh, I, I have a lot of respect for Saturn. I actually love Saturn, even though oh, yeah. yeah, Saturn comes in and fucks you up. But at the same time, uh, Saturn, Saturn is what gives us discipline and focus. Oh, yeah. um, when you suck at something, you have to, you have to find strength and you have to focus and you have to practice. And that's what mm-hmm. makes you good at something. Yeah. And, you know, it's the tortoise and the hare. Eventually the person that actually focuses, disciplines, practices, mm-hmm natural talent or not they will surpass the lazy hair <laughs> oh yeah well you, you're appreciative of the choir here i have i have saturn um saturn well dignified trying my natal sun and mercury oh nice oh i could see that yeah so so my 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 strong suit my strong suit is always what is the slow patient drudgery way of doing these things <laughs> you know the way you know it took me years my, my i, I 
I, I don't think I still have any of them, but my, my early attempts at writing books and novels and things like that sucked. <laughs> were dreadfully bad, and so I had to learn a step at a time how to write, you know, how to write publishable stuff. But I did it. Yeah. And a lot of other things in my life, it has been a matter of, um, okay, take this a bit at a time. Let's let's you know learn Latin and start reading old books on magic and divination and so on that have never been translated into English. And all of a sudden, I have a career writing books on magic because I know techniques that nobody's ever heard of. That is right. You know, in fact, I forgot to even mention this, but I was so excited when I realized that I was going to get to talk to you because you're the reason why I was able to read the Picatrix, which I'm like, so. Ah, yeah. Well, I'm half the reason. Chris Warnock is the other half of the reason. Chris and I worked together on that book and he put in as much work as I did. Right. I'm sure he did. But I, I always, I know a lot more. I knew a lot more about him than I did about you, but I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, it's. John Michael Greer, you, you're the one that actually helped to translate the Picatrix. So thank you mm-hmm. for that as well. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Instrumental. What, what a strange, marvelous experience that was. I'm sure. <laughs> Translating it, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's been uh, foundational to, like, what I mm-hmm. what I emphasize in my astrology, my classes, I should say, is, um, yes, natal chart astrology, it's important, but uh, transits uh, for the purpose of practicing natural magic. That's what my interest is. Nice. Yeah, so. I'm delighted to hear this good old-fashioned magical astrology. Yes, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I teach, and it's what brings me joy. And I share it with my students. Uh, to my ability, all of my all of my classes are about not just what's happening, but how to respond. We're in dialogue, you know. Let's like intelligently mm-hmm. respond to these these currents, these motions, this music. And um, that's mm-hmm. why I love natural magic. It's very very natural for me, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, great. I know this is this yeah. is this is very good to hear because one of the things that I was hoping when when we were working on this, I mean, on the one hand, there's the various ceremonial aspects and so on, but there's also just that simple, practical, natural magic stuff. Do this under this aspect, da 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 da, da and good things follow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's what I um, emphasize in all of my my classes. That's yeah. kind of my vibe and. And I always found it to be just completely, it's just so inspiring because I love poetry and I love music and these things just mm-hmm. all flow together. Um, and of course, I've always been inspired by the Renaissance. Therefore, I got into Marsilio Ficino and there ah, yes. mm-hmm. I was inspired to start doing what he said. Uh, the first encounter I had with um, Marsilio Ficino was really um, I had been diagnosed with depression, blah, blah, blah. You know, like every oh, world, right? Melancholia. Yeah. Melancholia, <laughs> exactly. And I learned from him what that was. And it it actually healed me. And it's it doesn't mean that I don't experience it, but I no longer look at it as mm-hmm. an illness. And I'm I resent that people don't allow you to experience melancholia. And I also took some of his prescriptions, including mm-hmm. Wearing light colors and going to a body of water and watching the sun sparkle across the water until mm-hmm. I feel better. And I was like, um, that is a really great idea. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, Ficino is Ficino is great. I'm very glad that his work is 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 available in English these days. And I I would like what well, one of the things that I I would like to see. I don't know if it's going to be on the list of things I'll be getting to anytime soon. But it would be nice to have somebody actually rewrite his some of his ideas and his prescription his and his his approach in modern English and get it out there. Oh my God! Yeah, I know. I agree. <laughs> like, I guess. <laughs> Some, I'm definitely not translating Ficino from Latin because I don't know Latin. However, I do adapt his work. Uh, oh, excellent. Excellent. That's what, that's basically the core of my teaching. That's what I do. Yeah. Each mm-hmm. Ficino. And of course, you know, I've drawn from the Picatrix plenty. Um mm-hmm. So did he. (laughs) Exactly. It's it all flows, and that's that's really where I am. That astrologer that you described at the end of the Twilight of Pluto that synthesized the yeah the evolutionary thing, the the sun sign horoscopes vibe plus the Hellenistic thing. I uh, I am not a part of any school of thought. I'm incredibly syncretic, but mm-hmm. I'm very lucky to have entered into this world at a time when you could be syncretic like that and mm-hmm. kind of reach into the primordial depths, that mysterious, unknown, ancient Egyptian religion. Also, the psychological Jungian aspects, it's extremely broad and very exciting. And um mm-hmm. For me, the Renaissance is like the beating heart of all of it, you know, like that's, mm-hmm. so that's why um, I love your work and I appreciate all of the work that you're doing with that beautiful Saturn. And <laughs> I also, which, uh, which of course makes it then that, that Saturn trine sent immediately sends me back. Ooh, what did people, what did dead people have to say about this? So, Yeah. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the wave of mundane astrology that is obviously percolating. I'm sure that there will be others aside from you Mm -hmm. to really help this grow. I expect it. Um, it. But yeah, I want, I want your, uh, your philosophical position to be the gold standard. It's not for everyone. As you said, it's not Mm -hmm. for, it's not for ideologues, essentially. You have to be willing to live outside of the popular paradigms in order to do this work. And that's why I really loved your book just, and on top of it all for the listeners, this is a great history book. Essentially, if you're just history, you will, it's a page turning history book. My, 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 my college degree is in history of ideas. I've been, I've been a, I have been a history geek since I was like six years old. Um, History is, well, again, there's that Saturn trying again. History is incredibly cool, and it has any, one enormous benefit. If you look back on history and see the same people doing the same stupid thing 300 times, maybe you won't do it yourself. Thank you. <laughs> because history is a marvelous collection of dumb ideas that blew up in people's faces. And so if you know what those dumb ideas were, and you know how they blew up in people's faces, you can do something different. That's right. And maybe it won't blow up in your face. Um, that doesn't seem to be something that the folks in Washington, D.C. are willing to think about right now. But I'm hoping that a lot of other people are, have, have more of a clue and are willing to look at the situation, look at where we are, look back in history at other empires in their twilight and other periods when you know civilizations had kind of run past their peak and were winding up, and say, okay, what worked then? Mm-hmm. And what didn't work? 
And how do you stay out of the way of the, you know, the idiots in power who think they can make the same mistakes work for them this time? Yeah, I I think that's definitely happening. Um, I said at the beginning, like the more that you oppose the human spirit, the more craving and desire and hunger there is for spontaneity, freedom, creative power. And we naturally, instinctually, and it can't be stopped, we naturally look to the past and dig into our ancestors. And I even have, outside of great history, which I love history too, that's what really motivated me as a mind, I guess, from the beginning. But mm-hmm. um, the, you know, my great grandmother, I went to visit her every summer. Uh, she was born. Wow. 1902 and she grew up on a farm so she might as well have been raised in the 19th century you know there was just mm-hmm. incredible mm-hmm. gap between my world and her world and so i spent every summer with her sitting across from her rocking wow. in the chair and listening to her tell me what her life was like wow and, yeah incredible that's 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 a real gift to have received it is i i i know i really do and it sure you do. changed me for yeah it changed me for the better of course it it gave me a real education and mm-hmm. um so yeah just to to have her in the background at all times mm-hmm. uh i don't have to go along with the way the world is right now cuz i know what she lived i know where i come from i know so much that can't even be put into words that protect mm-hmm. me protects me from the the corruption and the poison and the evil of these warmongers and their ideologies. Like, I just don't accept it. I don't eat it, you know? And mm-hmm. it's only because I just have a deeper reality within me at all times. Um, mm-hmm. So the power of history, you know, it's just, it's, it's edifying as well as instructive for strategic purpose. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the whole idea of this book being a great history book, I think is the most important thing for readers to understand. If you love history, pick up this book, even if you don't like astrology or you think that it's something that's too esoteric for you. The book is not esoteric in its use of astrology. It's actually incredibly lucid, clarifying, and it's my favorite use of astrology, which is as a lens of perception to understand history, which was brilliant. So thank you so well, thank much. You. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I have been talking your ear off for quite some time. Well, and- I, I've been, and, and I've been doing a certain amount of talking myself in the middle of that, you know. So yeah, what a, a lovely conversation. I am an enthusiastic uh, fan of your work and well, thank you. All of the, the the time periods that you explored and um, the the retellings of many periods in history that I already love. And it was just such a great read. So I cannot recommend The Twilight of Pluto by John Michael Greer enough. It is extremely available on Amazon, Kindle. You can <laughs> anywhere. It's a paperback. It's totally affordable. I really recommend that if you want to be educated in what really matters about astrology to read this book. Um, And it is just as important as Cosmos and Psyche. So thank you so much for coming on. And I hope that you'll come on again when you publish. Let us, let, let us arrange, arrange something for the next time. Because yeah, I, I'm hoping to do a whole series of books on astrology that, you know, as a writer, I write books and as an astrologer, that gives me a subject for books. So I'll, I'll make sure the publisher sends you a copy of the next one too. Oh, thank you so much. I look forward to that very much. And I actually, I really look forward to learning about mundane astrology more through mm-hmm. you. I've been waiting. Okay. For book. 
So thank you. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. All right. Well, I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. And until and next- likewise. <laughs> bye bye. And we'll talk next time. Bye bye now.